Okay, good morning. It's nice to see everyone again. It's been a while since we started the Parsha together. We've had the, uh, a little something called Pesach get in the way. But this week we resume our study of the Parsha, and it's with Parsha Shmini, page 588 in the stone Chumash, if you're following. Ironically, Hensha is not using a stone Chumash, but that's okay. We won't tell her, we won't, we won't tell her family. Um, we'll do what's our usual uh, practice. We'll review the whole Parsha and then go back and analyze a few of the specific Psukim. Parsha begins, of course, Vahibayamashmini was a reference to the eighth day. This is uh, regarding the inauguration of the Mishkan, that the uh, eighth day is uh, uh, the eighth day after they've begun this process. And Moshe summons Aaron, his brother Aaron, and his sons, and the elders, and so on, to begin the priestly service to launch. And um, it says, Karam Moshe Aaron Levanov. Moshe had to call them. They come here, the sacrifices, the details about what needs to be offered. Um, and the Torah goes on through at length to tell us the details about these sacrifices. Of course, then we have the section of the death of Nadav Aviyu, that on this most joyous of days, it was opening day in the Mishkan. They were going to inaugurate the, the new ballpark, the new Lahavdil, the new Mishkan, with great anticipation, with great excitement. And the amazing joy is interrupted by a, a horrific sadness when uh, very suddenly Nadav and Aviyu meet a very untimely passing. Why did they die? What did they do wrong? What's Aaron's reaction? That's what we're going to take a look at a little bit uh, this morning. But immediately following that, the very next uh, section is a commandment given to Aaron alone. And that is the prohibition against Yayin v'Sheichar al-Tesht. In the Mikdash, there is a prohibition against drinking alcohol. You're not allowed to have anything that intoxicates. Why is that? Those who were here when we studied uh, for Purim... Why is there a mitzvah? Is there a mitzvah to drink on Purim? If you recall, we went through that issue. The Rav had a magnificent interpretation that Purim akate avde achashverosh anan. When it comes to Purim, we remain slaves to achashverosh. We don't have a Beis Hamikdash. We uh, we still live in a certain level of exile. We lack a temple. We lack hashras hashchina. We don't have a place to go to to feel Hashem's intense uh, presence. So, therefore, true simcha, authentic simcha, Rabbi Soloveitchik uh, pointed out, that always in the Chumash, when we find the term simcha, it's always in conjunction with two other words. Lifnei Hashem. Real joy takes place where? Before whom? Before Hashem. Why? Because when you're in front of Hashem, you have a feeling that everything's going to be okay. You have full confidence that there's meaning, there's order, there's purpose to the universe, that things happen for a reason. We don't live in a world of randomness and chance and nature, but that there is purpose to the world. So when one is lifting Hashem, when one is confident, with no doubt whatsoever, that we have a loving, trusting Father who's guiding us and who's shaping our destiny, one is automatically filled with simcha. Simcha is the, the resolution of doubt. Ein simcha kataras asafik. Gemara says there's no joy like the resolution of doubt. You live with doubt and uncertainty and it gets resolved. By the way, it doesn't even say that it gets resolved for the good. Sometimes it gets resolved even for the bad. But at least you can begin now to deal with the bad. You can begin to grieve, you can begin to accommodate, you can begin to whatever the case may be. But there's no joy like the resolution of doubt. So people are plagued by doubt. Does God exist? Does He not exist? Is He involved in my life? Is He not involved in my life? It's one of the challenges of living in a world of... of um, of concealment, of where Kadosh Baruch Hu practices, where he hides his faith, hides his face. So uh, one of the challenges of living in a world of concealment is doubt, and doubt creeps in. Rabbi Lamb has developed a beautiful concept of the idea of doubt being a part of faith. The struggle with doubt is an expression of faith in itself. But doubt creeps in. So where is there room for doubt? 
when God is hidden, when God is concealed, when we are in exile. We don't have a base amikdash. There's not a place to go to to see open miracles. Not a place to go to to feel intense divine presence. That's when you can be filled with doubt. So how do we achieve simcha when we're in exile, said the Rav? Counterfeit. We have to turn to a counterfeit simcha. So on Purim, which is a day of Akati Avdei Achashverosheman, Purim, which is a day of we remain in exile despite the celebration of the redemption from Persia, of Iran, of Shushan, of Achashverosh, of Haman in those days, still there's the realization that today we're still in exile. That's why we don't say halal on Purim. One of the reasons. R- Rava gives the reason. Rava says the reason we don't say halal, why? We're still slaves to Achashverosh, namely we're still in exile. The same Rav is the one who says, that a person is obligated to get intoxicated. And Rabbi Salavitchik said, why is that? Because when you don't have access to the authentic simcha, there's no choice but to employ the counterfeit simcha. So you have a l'chaim, and that raises your spirits so that you can feel a sense of joy. But, said the Rav, when you're in the Mikdash, when you're in the Mishkan, when you have accents to Hashem, Yain that's this week's Parsha, Hashem tells Aaron directly, wine and intoxicants are forbidden to drink you and your sons, Kohanim Oomoid. And what's the punishment? Death, capital punishment. That means to say that genuine spirituality has no room for counterfeit. I remember having a conversation with someone once who told me that he was about tshuva. And he said that part of his process of becoming a Batshuva, he's so grateful to marijuana. Because he would smoke pot and when he was high, he would have the most intense spiritual discussions. And that's how he discovered Hashem, and that's how he discovered Judaism, and that's how he discovered observant life, and that's how he discovered everything. Now everyone has their own path. <laughs> I'm not endorsing drug use, let me make it very clear. Um, everyone has their own path, I'm not being critical of this particular individual. But know, know that it's counterfeit. In other words, real joy, real spirituality does not require any outside influence. It doesn't require any, any other uh, object. Real spirituality is lifnei Hashem. V'samachta lifnei Hashem. V'samachta b'chagat lifnei Hashem. All lifnei Hashem is real simcha. And that's what this uh, law is coming to teach. Yain v'sheicha al-teisht. You can't drink or become intoxicated when you're lifnei Hashem because how could you abandon the authentic opportunity for joy and spirituality and replace it with a counterfeit, with yayin, b'sheicha, with wine and an intoxicant. Okay, next we have Moshe tells Aaron and his sons who are left, Elazar and Itamar, Elazar and Isamar, the sons, that uh, that which is the remaining, sorry, take the remaining meal offerings from the fire and eat it unleavened near the altar, what to do with the day's offerings, how you get rid of it. Then you have uh, the next section, is a conversation between Moshe and Aaron, a dispute about what to do, the chatas, uh, the Torah records. And then we have the laws of kashras, the bulk of the parsha, are the laws of kashras, modern day kashras, what we can eat, what we can't eat, what are the criteria for birds, for fowl, what are the criteria for animals, what are the criteria for fish, the laws of uh, what you can eat and what you cannot eat. Creepy crawly things and so on and so forth. It's the whole end of the Parsha. It's the bulk of the Parsha. It's worth examining, but we're not going to look into it today. What are the reasons for kashras? Is kashras a chok? Is it one of those laws that doesn't have a comprehensible reason? We just observe it. Are there reasons suggested? Is it about cleanliness? Is it about discipline? Is it about... It's for another time. An important subject, but for another time. What I want to look at together is Perak Yud, chapter 10, Pasuk Aleph, verse 1. And the reason I want to look at this today is because I think this episode um, has a lot to say with what begins tonight and tomorrow, namely Yom HaShoah.
Okay, Pasuk Aleph. Again, for a sense of context, we're in the middle of this incredible joy. Opening day at the Mishkan, the inauguration ceremony. It's a very, very uh, happy and joyous time. And Moshe and Aaron and his sons have been instructed as to the opening sacrifices to bring. And then very, very um, abruptly, in the middle, Vayichu b'nei Aaron adav aviu ish mach taso vayitnu b'hen ish vayasimu aleha kitoras Vayakrivu lifnei Hashem ish zara asher lo tziva osam Aaron's sons, Nadav and Aviu, each took a pan and they put fire in them and they placed incense on it and they took this burning incense in a pan, they brought it before Hashem. It was an Eish Zara, the Torah describes. Eish Zara. It was a strange, an alien, a foreign fire. Asherlotzivosam. It was not commanded. This was not part of the regimen. This was not on the agenda for the day. This was not in the program for opening day at the Mishkan. And yet they, spontaneously, they autonomously decided to introduce another element, another act to the agenda of that day. Who set the agenda of that day? Where did it come from? There was no committee. There was no chairperson. It was the Almighty Himself. It was a Kosh Baruch Hashem Yisbaruch. So Hashem sets an agenda and Nadav and Aviyu interrupt the agenda spontaneously. Maybe even nobly. Maybe it came out of noble intent. But spontaneously they interrupt by taking a pan with fire, burning incense. This is a foreign fire that God had not commanded them. And what happened? A fire went out from God. Not their fire, but a fire came out from Hashem, came down. And it consumed them. They died instantly. I mean, can you picture the scene? Jewish community is all gathered. The Mishkan has finally been built, assembled. The Kahanim's clothing has been tailored. The Moshe has anointed. Moshe has spent seven days uh, inaugurating the Mishkan by himself, functioning as a Kohen and going through a dry run of all of the different elements and aspects and procedures of the Mishkan. The eighth day has finally arrived. Inauguration day. Everyone is there. A huge scene. Beautiful. Kohanim are dressed in their finest. Big day kahuna. And the crowd is assembled to watch. And it's an incredible joyous this is the ultimate affirmation that God has forgiven them for the Chaita Ego. They abandoned God when they worshipped the golden calf. God responded by saying, Don't initiate your own worship. If you need a tangible way to connect to me, I'll give you one. Build a Mishkan. Here are the details, the specs. Build it. They built it. The days arrived. They're offering the sacrifices. It's going off. It's fantastic. They feel Hashem's presence. It's amazing. All of a sudden, Nadavaviyu, two sons of Aaron, spontaneously take the avoda, the service, a step further. They offer this, this uh, service that wasn't commanded, the burning of the incense in these pans. And a fire comes down and kills them on the spot. Now you have two dead bodies, two corpses, <coughs> two young men who've been taken in the prime of their lives in the middle of the Mishkan. On the most joyous day, the inauguration day. What happens? What, what is there to say? Moshe turns to his brother Aaron. He's just seen his two nephews die. And he said, Brother, I guess this is what God meant when He said, Moshe tries to comfort and console his brother when he says, I guess this is what God meant when He said, I will be sanctified through those who are nearest to me. 
I will, and thus I will be honored before everybody. And how does Aaron react? Vayidom Aaron. Aaron is silent. Aaron is silent. You can picture a lull sweeps over the crowd. There's dead silence. Moshe leans over, puts his arm around his brother, whispers into his ear, this is what God meant, that he would become sanctified through those closest to him. Moshe is trying to comfort his brother by saying they must be so great, God has chosen them to become sanctified through. And how does Aaron respond? Does he yell? Does he scream? Does he cry? Maybe. We'll see. But ultimately, Vayidom, he's silent. Moshe calls Mishal and El Tzafan, the sons of Uziel, who is the uncle of Aaron, in other words, Aaron's cousins. Come close. Take out, carry out your brothers. In other words, your cousins from out of the Mishkan, outside the camp. Why did they have to do it? Why couldn't Aaron? Nadav and Aviyu had two surviving brothers, Elazar and Isamar. Why didn't they? We'll see. We'll see. Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, by the way, observes something very important on this Pasuk. The Torah doesn't just say that Moshe randomly called anybody. Where's the Chevra Kadisha? We need somebody to step forward and carry them out. Where's Hatzalah? Where's the uh, Chesed Committee? Moshe calls El Tzafan and Mishael, and the Torah identifies them B'nai Uziel Dod Aaron as cousins. Says Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, you see from here that the, while all of the Jewish people have a responsibility <coughs> to care for the deceased, family members have a greater responsibility. The first obligation is upon family to make sure that there's a proper burial, to be pallbearers, to handle the details, take on the expenses, and so on. Anyway, Pasakei, they approached and they carried as Moshe had commanded. Moshe commands Aaron, Elazar, and Itamar, his sons, Rashechem al Tifra'u, Uvigdechem lo Sifromu, Velo Samusu, Vakol ha'ida yiktof, Vachechem kobes Yisrael yivku es ha'srifa, Asher saraf Hashem. Moshe tells them, Don't leave your head uncut. Don't leave your hair uncut. In other words, cut your hair. And don't tear your garments. What is that reminiscent? Who leaves their hair uncut? And who tears their garment? A mourner. Moshe was instructing them, don't interrupt today's events to mourn. Why? That you not die. You, you're not allowed to. And then it would be taken out on everybody. But rather, the rest of the Jewish people will cry, will mourn this great loss. Hasrefash saraf Hashem. This this uh, burning that God has ignited. Not only don't mourn, don't leave the entrance of the Almoid. You can't leave the Mishkan. You'll die. For the oil of Hashem's anointment is upon you. In other words, today's inauguration day. You've been anointed. You have a job, a responsibility. You are the Kohanim. As tragic, as overwhelming, as traumatic as this is, Put one foot in front of another. Keep on going. You can't stop now. And what did they do? By Var Moshe. They did as Moshe told. That's the section. This is the tragic section of the story of the loss of Nadav and Aviyu. The story of the loss of Nadav and Aviyu. It's tragic. It's, it's, 
you read it, you can't help but be emotionally moved. You can't help but feel for Aaron. I mean, who is Aaron? Oiv Shalom, Rodev Shalom, Oiv Esabrios. Aaron is the everyman. Everybody loves Aaron. Moshe is a little bit more aloof. Moshe is distant. Moshe is the scholar. Moshe's head is in the clouds. Moshe is on the mountain 40 days with Hashem. Moshe is a leader from a distance. Who is Aaron? Oiv Esabrios. He loves people. He's the peacemaker. He sees two people in an argument. He makes peace. Makar van the Torah. Aaron is the first leader of the Kirov movement. The Mishnah Novos. Makar van the Torah. Aaron brings them closer to Torah. Aaron loves everybody. Everybody loves Aaron. He's jovial and fun and, and peaceful. And, and this is the loss that he suffers. To bury not one child, to bury two children. And not to bury them with the opportunity to say goodbye but suddenly, and not to bury them on a day of sadness, an interruption of what should be the happiest day of his life. Aaron is inaugurated as the first Kohen Gadol of history. This is the most joyous day of his life. He's practiced, he's trained, he's been designated, he's been assigned, he's ready to go. And on this most joyous day of his life, he loses his two sons. It's a tragic and difficult section. So what did Nadav Aviyu do wrong? What did they do wrong? And how do we understand... Moshe's reaction, and how do we understand Aaron's reaction? So let's see, as we like to do, what the Mepharshim here have to say. Let's see what they have to say. Um, look at the Rashbam, Rabbi Shmuel ben Meir, Rashi's grandson. Says the Rashbam in the fine print. Before the fire had extended downward from Hashem, they, Nadav and Aviyu, had initiated bringing incense on the golden altar. The morning incense precedes the burning of the limbs. Now, says the Rashbam, what they wanted to bring, what they tried to offer, was something that made sense to offer. What they were trying to offer was the, the incense offering, which is what's supposed to be offered. Only that day was an exception. It wasn't going to be offered that day. Why? Even though every other day the Torah instructs us already earlier, the opening chapter of the book of Vayikra, that the sons of Aaron, a Kohen, introduce a fire to the Mizbeach, Hayom Lotziva. Today it wasn't commanded. Moshe did not want a ordinary person to ignite the fire. Where was the fire supposed to come from on this opening day? From above, from Hashem. It was supposed to be a miraculous, spontaneous flame. This was not the day to come with your lighter, to come with your match. This was not the day for a human being to interrupt what was going to be a miraculous display and affirmation of God's presence in the Mishkan. It was all diagrammed, it was all planned, says the Rashbam. Moshe had it all planned out with Hashem. The Kohanim, of course, were going to do the service. But where was the fire going to come from? Hashem. Hashem. It was going to be, I mean, you could picture Lahavdil, like a great Disney production. 
right? Everything would be set up and then it seemingly out of nowhere burst into flames, a fire on the Mizbeach. And everybody would be overwhelmed with the confidence and the knowledge Hashem is here. Hashem did that. Because maybe we built this house, maybe we constructed these drapes. Is there Hashem? Is He here? But that opening day would set the precedent forever for the Mishkan. Hashem is here. God exists. God is part of today's ceremony. This fire miraculously ignited, came from above. And when they stepped forward, and even though it came from a good place, and even though seemingly they were obeying orders, because earlier Kohanim had been instructed every day you are to light the fire. So the Pasuk said, Nevertheless, today was not the day for an Eish Zara. Because today was a day to sanctify God's name. For all time, people would turn back and know that the very first day the Mishkan was functioning, how did it start? Miraculously from Hashem. So the Rashbam identifies what was the mistake and what was so egregious about it that it was punishable by death, preventing a Kiddush Hashem, interrupting what was supposed to be a precedent for all time, taking away the miracle that people would have known with certainty Hashem was there, that was punishable. I would say almost the Rashbam's interpretation makes it almost parallel to another similar um, mistake of a very holy person was also punishable in a sense by death. Not on that moment, but delayed. Moshe, with which episode? The rock. This didn't occur to me literally to right now. But the way the Rashbam understands it is almost the same as many of the commentators with Moshe. When Hashem, the people complain they're thirsty, Hashem tells Moshe, speak to the rock. Moshe and Aaron, in fact. And instead of speaking to the rock, he hits the rock. And according to many commentators, it was a loss of an opportunity of Kiddush Hashem. That if all of the people watching would have spontaneously see water flow from a rock, they would say, what are we complaining about? Look who's taking care of us. Look where this water just came from. That's unbelievable. What a miracle. There's a God. And He loves us. Instead, Moshe hit the rock. And some of the Mephoshim explained. The people now say, oh, he hit a rock. And he cracked the rock. And he found a fissure, a fissure in the rock where there is a, 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 dam, a stream behind it. And water's flowing. Okay, shkayach. It's nature. So Moshe prevented the opportunity of a Kiddush Hashem. And what does God say? Is there, a, is there a high tolerance for God that Moshe did that? There's a zero tolerance. Moshe doesn't die on the spot. But he's told you ain't going into Eretz Yisrael. So maybe there's a parallel between that and the Rashbam's understanding here, where again, this was set up for a Kiddush Hashem of great magnitude. The fire was going to spontaneously erupt. People would know Hashem is there. Nadav and Aviyu interrupted it. And that prevention of a Kiddush Hashem is punishable by death. Just told you, I'm sorry. Question. Yes. In the prior page, it says the fire went forth from So that's where the Rashbam began his commentary. That this happened even before God's fire went out. You're right. You have to explain chronologically differently. That's how the Rashbam begins his comment by uh, explaining exactly in that way. So that's how the Rashbam understands. It's interesting. 
because from the text you didn't know that God had this plan of this miracle that people would know. It's as if they didn't know He existed. Ten plagues, that wasn't good enough. Splitting of the sea, not good enough. And we need a spontaneous fire. Got to keep up in the ante of impressing this people who seem like they can't be impressed to know that Hashem exists and in this quintessential moment to impress upon them that was interrupted with the strange fire. So how is the Rashbam understanding the term Eish Zara? Rashbam is understanding the term Eish Zara meaning a foreign fire. No one invited them to bring this fire. It was a strange fire. It wasn't part of the agenda. It wasn't part of the program. The fire was supposed to come from Hashem. When they introduced this Eish Zara this was a strange fire that wasn't part of the program. Rashi quotes a number of interpretations of exactly what they did wrong. Says Rashi, Rabbi, quoting from the uh, Torah's Kohanim, the Medrash, Rabbi Eliezer Omer, Man Pasik Beis and Rashi. Rabbi Eliezer teaches, Lo Why did they die? Because they taught a halacha in front of Moshe. They initiated a halacha in front of Moshe and teaching Torah in front of your Rebbe is punishable by death because it lacks honor to your rabbi because it undermines the system the hierarchy of Torah you're not allowed to teach in front of your Rebbe that's Rabbi Eliezer's opinion of what they did wrong Rabbi Yishmael Omer you know what they did wrong? they had a few l'chaims before they came into the Mishkan that day so when they came in it wasn't the fire that wasn't the problem and it wasn't the incense offering that they weren't commanded that was the problem says Rabbi Shmuel, you know what the problem was? They were a shtickle uh, shikr. And that's why the very next section, of course, is the commandment that you're not allowed to drink in the Mishkan. Right? Rabbi Shmuel obviously derives this. Why would God in the very next, next section teach this halacha if it weren't to explain why did Nadav and Aviyu die? So their death was because on this inaugural day when one should derive all of their spiritual sustenance, when one should derive all of their high from being in the presence of the Almighty, there's no room for intoxication. There's no room for l'chaims and drinking. Right? So Rashi says that's where Rabbi Shmuel derived this. Now the Sifsei Chachamim, the super commentary on Rashi, can't help but ask. Look in Oshin. What do you mean? How could it be they were punished? They hadn't been warned yet. They hadn't been instructed yet. How could they be held accountable, and not only accountable, death penalty for something they had no warning about? How is that just? So look at the next comment in the Sifsei Chachamim. The verse continues and says, they offered a strange fire that they were not commanded. Says the Sifsei Chachamim, the phrase that they were not commanded is not meant to explain their death. It means to say that they volunteered this, this incense offering. They were not commanded it. It means that they offered this fire, they weren't commanded in it. That's not why they died. But once they were in there offering this strange fire, they weren't commanded. They died because at that moment they were drunk. Now God wanted to be sanctified through their death. 
And if not for God wanting to be sanctified through their death, they would not have died right now. Offering a, a uh, sacrifice or offering this katoris that they weren't commanded is not worthy of the death penalty. It's not so egregious that they should die. So why they die now? So listen to this. The Chacham says it has nothing to do with anything they did right now. The truth is, they were accountable for something they had done earlier. But God delayed that punishment until today. He wanted them to die on this day. Why? Because it would be a great sanctification of His name, the fact that they would die today, and their family would continue in the inauguration nonetheless. It would be a sanctification of God's name, for the display of love and loyalty of the family to say, despite the loss they had incurred, they remain committed to Hashem and to the inauguration. So what was the earlier act they did that they were punishable by death? If they were not being punished for right now, what was the earlier thing? So turn back to Shmos chapter 24, verse 10. Shmos chapter 24, verse 10. It's found in the article Stone Chumash on page 440. Page 440. What's the context? You may recall the words Na'asa v'nishma. Mm-hmm. At the end of Parshas Mishpatim, the Torah recounts how when the Jewish people received the Torah, they said, we will do and we will listen. At that moment, they were an incredible high. Vaya'al Moshe v'aron Yisrael. Moshe Aaron, who else? Nadav and Aviu and 70 elders went up. Went up. Vayiru es elokei Yisrael. And they saw God. They saw an image of God. This was a moment of incredible prophecy. After the amazing high of the acceptance of the Torah, this group... Moshe and Aaron, Nadav and Aviyu, 70 elders, had an amazing moment of prophecy. They saw this image of Hashem, and at Hashem's feet was sapphire brickwork. And it was there to remind, to tell them that Hashem remembered them even in slavery. The great men of the children of Israel, he did not stretch out his hand. They gazed, they looked at this image, and what did they do when they saw this image? And this moment of unbelievable prophecy, when they saw an image of the Almighty Himself, what did they do? Vayochlu, vayishtu. They ate, and they drank. Now, Unklus understands the eating and the drinking in this Pasuk favorably. Because what were they doing when they ate and they drank? It was joy, they were sanctifying this moment. It was a sin. What do you do when you finish learning? You make a siyam. You serve some Chinese food. <laughs> deli sandwiches. You make a siyam with food. How do we celebrate Shavuos, the day of the giving of the Torah? <laughs> food. Cheesecake. Food. Food. How do you celebrate a wedding? A bar mitzvah? A birth of a child? Food. Says Unklus, Vayichlu Vayishtu is fine. 
How do we capture a great spiritual moment? By indulging physically. But others do not understand it this way. And many understand that the reason that Nadav and Aviyu died today is a punishment for Vayochlu Vayishtu, the fact that they ate and drank. Here God is revealing His, His image to these people. God has never appeared to anyone, never will appear again. God reveals kind of an image they saw. What, what does the Pasuk say? Vayiru Eisalokei Yisrael. They saw the God of Israel. And what do they do? Could you pass me the Diet Coke? Could you pass me a, an egg roll? And that's why they're punishable by death. Interesting that the tour... Why would it be then be limited to Oh, it's a good question. Why did Moshe and Aaron not... Moshe and Aaron, the Ziknei Yisrael... Great question. I don't know the answer. The tour points out, the uh, Balaturim, there in Shemos, that who's missing? Aaron, Nadav, and Avil. Where are Elazar and Yisamar? Where are Aaron's other two sons? Says the Balaturim, they didn't go because God knew what was destined to happen and God did not want to leave Aaron childless. Had they been there, they too would have indulged. They too would have ultimately therefore been killed. God did not want to leave Aaron childless. So only Nadav and Avi were there. Elazar and Itamar were not. By the way, Elazar and Itamar, familiar as two cities in Israel today? Yeah. Elazar is in Gush Etzion. Itamar is the tragic city where the Fogel family lived and were brutally murdered. Named after Aaron's two sons, Elazar and Itamar. So Elazar and Itamar are not there. Why? Says the Balaturim. So as to not have left Aaron childless. So... Is explaining that the truth is they didn't do anything so terrible that day they deserved to die. They had done something earlier that was deserving of death, but Hashem postponed their death until this day because their dying on this day would result in a great sanctification of Hashem's name. How else can we understand Eish Zara? This was a strange fire. Look at the Orachayim Makadosh, Chaim Benatar. Rechaim says, Zara asher lo tziva, perish. What was strange about this fire? Shilotziva Hashem osam, because God had not commanded it. The Rechaim says, maybe the problem was that they ignited, initiated a new flame. They lit a fire. Had they lit their fire from an existing fire, maybe this wouldn't have happened. Where does he derive that from? The term Zara. Eish Zara means a strange fire. Strange means it was initiated from outside the system. They lit the fire. Had they lit their fire from an existing one, maybe this wouldn't have happened. Od Zara, The other understanding, and this is the classical understanding, is what makes it a strange fire is it's a foreign. The word Zara could mean foreigner. It's foreign in the sense that it wasn't commanded. Now, why is volunteering something for noble religious ambition punishable by death just because it wasn't commanded? Obedience has a negative connotation. I agree. I don't like the term obedience because it kind of turns us into robots, be obedient. It has a little bit of a negative connotation. But I would relate it back to the, the Beis HaLevi's understanding of the Chaita Egel that we discussed. The Beis HaLevi understood, remember the Kuzari, the Beis HaLevi that we talked about, what was the mistake of the Chaita Egel, the building of the golden calf? 
was that the Jewish people said, we need a tangible way to connect to the God. When Moshe, he is here as our teacher, we connect to God through Moshe. Not that we see Moshe as a deity, as a God himself, but we need somebody we can hear, we can feel, we can touch, we can hug, we can look at. We need something. And when Moshe got stuck on the mountain, where they miscalculated and thought he wasn't coming back, they said, we need that intermediary, something tangible we can see, we can touch, we can hold on to. We're physical beings, we need a physical way to connect. And they built a ego. That's how the Kuzarisa explains. They didn't have an affair on God. This wasn't an act of idolatry. This was actually a noble act. They wanted to relate to Hashem further. They just inappropriately expressed that by building something that had no place, that they weren't commanded. And that's indeed how Hashem responds to them. He says, you need a physical way to connect to me? I'm cool with that. But let me tell you what it should be. This is my world. This is my playground. I ain't created you. I created everything. I am all that exists. You can't grow close to me by introducing your own novel, creative ways. I've placed the system. I've put the system in place. And therefore he gives them the Mishkan as the antidote to the Chayta Egel, to the sin of the golden calf. And adds the Beis HaLevi, that's why you have Vayakal Pekudeh repeated. Remember we discussed this. You have Truma Tetzaveh, all the details of how to build the tabernacle. Then you have Kisisa, which has the whole episode of the golden calf. And then you have Ayaka Pakude repeating all the details of the Mishkan. Points out the Beis Alevi, he repeats all the details with one exception. What does it keep saying with all the details? As God commanded. Why? Says the Beis Alevi, because the building of the Mishkan was the antidote, the response, because it reminded the people they have to do what Hashem said. You want to get close to Hashem? He's given us 613 ways. Don't introduce the 614th or 615th or 616th. Because you're creative, because it feels good. This is why many are against Shlisochala, the Shabbos. The Shabbos is the Shlisochala, put a key in the Chala. And there is a tradition and there are explanations offered why you should put a key in the Chala. But many of my Rebbeim have explained that this is superstition, it's Baba Maisa. What is a skula? The Torah says God charges us to be an Amsegula. What's a skula? The commentaries explain, Amsegula means a nation who observe Torah and mitzvot. What makes us treasured, what makes us special, what draws us close to Hashem, is our connecting through the mitzvot that He's given us. Our appreciation of time, because of time-bound mitzvot. Appreciation of physical world, because of the commandments regarding food and physical pleasure and laws of family purity. Our appreciation of relationships, because He's commanded us in Kibbutz aim interpersonal relationships, honesty, integrity. He gave us the framework and system to find meaning and purpose and connect to Him. We don't need to introduce other superstitions because they feel good. Particularly if we are doing it at the expense of the, six, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the regular meaningful ones. We have the framework. Don't abandon the framework to adopt some Hibijibi superstition ones because they feel good. That's exactly what the Chayta Egel was. God told us what to do. Don't create a Chayta Egel. That's exactly Nadav and Aviyu. This was an Eish Zara. But it feels good to create all kinds of innovations within Judaism. I'm not going to throw any out. I don't want to be controversial. But it feels good to assign new titles and labels or create new quorums or introduce new observances and practices and ceremonies. It feels good. And it's noble. It's for spiritual ambition to get close to Hashem. 
says the Torah, but does it answer the measure of Eish Zara? Is it Zara or is it Asher Tziva Elohim? Is it foreign or is it what God asked us to do? It's like in any relationship. If my wife asks me to do certain things, could you take the garbage out? Could you help me with the kids this? Could you, can we set aside time that we're going to talk about A, B, C, and D? And I don't do the things that she's asked, but I come home and say, look honey, I bought, bought you this unbelievable thing. I think you're going to love it in the kitchen. I'm spending my time right now assembling it because it's this great thing for you. I did that because I thought this was a great thing for her. And I did that because I thought it's going to draw me close to her. That she saw, I bought something she didn't even ask me to buy and I'm putting time to build it because it's going to be great for her. And she looks at me and she says, that's nice, I, I appreciate it, but if you want to do what, what will make us close, I asked you to do A, B, and C. <laughs> so when you ignore me on A, B, and C, and instead you try to do something I didn't even ask, I appreciate the gesture, but it's not what I asked. If you love me, get close to me by caring about what I asked. So that's what God says. I'm not interested in Eish Zara. That's the second interpretation of the Orachayim understands. Eish Zara is And that's what Nadav and the, the, the Kiddush Hashem that God created that day is by setting a precedent that He doesn't tolerate even when it's for beautiful L'Shem Shamayim purposes. There is room for innovation in Judaism within the boundaries. But when it crosses the boundary of Zara, when it comes from the outside that it's Zara, and I'm not going to suggest to you this morning who gets to choose that line of between when it's foreign and when it's within the boundaries, but when it crosses that boundary, Hashem says, like my wife, I, I appreciate the gesture, but it, it's not what I asked. And therefore it's not going to result in our getting close. The Kliyakar has a long comment. We don't have time to get into it. I encourage you to look at it. Here the Kliyakar elaborates at length. I'll just uh, I'll read it to you outside quickly. He quotes from the Yalkut, who quotes uh, many different opinions. What did they do wrong? They were drunk. Or they entered the Mishkan, they hadn't washed their hands and their feet, which they're obligated to do with the Kiyor. Or maybe they weren't wearing all of the priestly garments. They, they were Mechusre Begadim. Or some say, you know what their sin was? They didn't have children. Now, it's not that they tried having children and they couldn't. That's not a sin. That's not in your control. It means that they chose not to have children. They were pursuing their careers. Or some say, you know what their sin was? They didn't get married. They, were, they preferred bachelorhood. They weren't pursuing marriage. Some say the mistake was they paskined halacha in front of Moshe. Some say, They were conspiring. When are Moshe and Aaron going to die already so we could take over? Our fa- it's their father and uncle. But what are our father and uncle, they've got all the prime time. They've got the spotlight. When are they going to retire already, literally or figuratively, so that we can take over? Some say it was still from the Chaita Egel. The Kliyakar quotes all these different opinions. What did Nadav and Aviyu do wrong? What did they do wrong? Kliyakar says, they're all wrong. They're all wrong. None of what they suggest is evident from the Psukim themselves, from the verses themselves. They're all wrong. Listen to his language. al Kain. You can almost hear the Kliyaka Rav Lunchitz in, in uh, Lodge sighing and saying, So it falls on me, what can I do? What can I do? It falls on me to explain what's going on here. And he has a long commentary to explain his interpretation of what's going on and to try to bring evidence from the verses and so on and so forth. But let's keep going. I want to get to the reaction. So Moshe turns to Aaron 
And he says to him, Bikrovai Ekadesh. He's trying to comfort him. And how does he try to comfort him? By telling him that God promised through those closest to him he will become sanctified. Aaron, on the one hand, this is horrific. On the one hand, this is tragic. On the one hand, this is unimaginable. But Aaron, know that your sons were great because God would not have chosen them on this day before everyone to die if not for their greatness. Rashi, in fact, makes an amazing statement. Rashi says that Moshe and Aaron had this tradition that God had told them he was going to become sanctified through the death of some of, of those closest to him on this great day. Whom did Moshe assume it was referring to? Himself and Aaron. He tells Aaron, Aaron, I thought it was me and you. We were going to go. But be comforted to know that your sons were even greater than we are. Uh, Nathan Whitstam, a member of our community who was back for Pesach from learning in Yeshiva who spoke on Pesach, pointed out from here, Moshe, who's Anav Mikol Adam, Moshe, who's more humble than any man, tells Aaron, God said I'm going to become sanctified through those closest to me, through the greatest. And Moshe says, I, I thought that was me. How does that stim, how does that fit with being the most humble of all men? So Nathan pointed out correctly that it, it is an insight into what humility really is. Humility is not denying who you are. Humility is appreciating that it comes from above. Humility is not, you know, there's a, there's a great statement I once saw. What was it? Being humble is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Being humble is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less, less often. That was Moshe's greatness. So Moshe turns to his brother Aaron and tries to comfort him by saying, we knew someone was going to go, we knew it would be those closest to Hashem, at least know that your sons are closest to Hashem and therefore find comfort. Moshe is trying to give some, some meaning, some context, to provide some answer, some explanation, some meaning. And how does Aaron react? The Ramban says, Vayidom Aaron, look at the Ramban, Shaya Bekol, he was crying out, but when Moshe told him that, Va'az Shasak, he was quiet. So the Ramban understands that really at first Aaron was crying, he was wailing. He was, he, was, he was crying hysterically over the loss of his two sons. But when Moshe provided that meaning, that context, Aaron found the strength, the comfort in his brother's words. He found the comfort and the solace to be able to move on silently. That's how the Ramban understands. Uh, the Rashbam understands, Vayidom Aaron, Me'avaluso. He was silent, doesn't mean that he didn't have questions, doesn't mean he didn't cry, doesn't mean, it means he didn't mourn. The Torah instructs him, you're the Kohen Gadol, Kohen Gadol is not even allowed to mourn for his immediate relatives, can't contaminate himself even for his immediate relatives, which is why the cousins had to carry out the bodies. So Vayidom, silent means he was silent from the mourning practices. So these are different interpretations of what does it mean, Vayidom. But the simple understanding of Vayidom means that Aaron was silent. Moshe's words, Moshe's words of comfort were met with complete silence. Complete and utter, absolute and total silence. Isn't the whole phrase Mikrovayat HaKadosh kind of problematic? When is it that that 
people that God, God, God becomes sanctified. It's not necessarily in death. It's just right. Right. Sarah's asking a great, a great question. Right. So we don't believe people die for God. That's not the Jewish no, way. I mean, the whole thing is. It's so strange. Although people die al Kiddush Hashem. Yeah, but that's different. This is this is God was God killed them. Right. That they die al Kiddush Hashem is a completely different right. animal. Right. Right. It's a, a very problematic. So Moshe offers these words of of comfort, tries to give a context and meaning, and meaning, and Moshe's words are met with silence, complete and utter, absolute and total silence. Now, what was the root of Aaron's silence? Was Aaron so devastated that he had nothing to say? Did Aaron have such deep faith that he had no need for answers? Was Aaron so overwhelmed by trauma that he couldn't find words? We don't know. Torah doesn't tell us. All it tells us is Vayido. He was silent. So I want to tell you an unbelievable story. An unbelievable story. And this relates to Yom HaShoah. Because Aaron's reaction here can be a great precedent for how the Jewish people react to tragedy. How do we respond to whether it was Nadav and Aviyu, the loss of two, or whether it's Yom HaShoah, the loss of, of six million? Questions that we'll never answer. Why do bad things happen to good people? You know, we just finished the holiday, the season of questions. Pesach was all about the questions, and we had great answers. And right away we encounter Yom HaShoah, which again is a holiday season of questions, elicits many questions, only there are no satisfying answers. So how do we, how do we react? So a man once approached, approached the Kloisenberger Rebbe. And this young man asked the Kloisenberger Rebbe, he said, tell me, how is it so many of the survivors found the courage and the strength not only to survive, but to rebuild, to start families, to remain positive, to maintain their faith in society and humanity? How'd they do it? How do you walk out of Auschwitz and Majdanek? How do you escape... Sobibor. How do you survive the ghetto and, find, and, and maintain faith in humanity? And you look at Martin Judovitz and you look at Rabbi Klein and you look at Cantor Wax and you look at so many survivors in our community and, and you wonder, how is it? They're in shul, davening, talking to Hashem, seeing goodness in people, doing good things. Now the Kloisenberger Rebbe was really the perfect person for this young man to ask because he had lost his wife and 11 children in the gas chambers. And he survived to build a tremendous Hasidic dynasty of thousands. So he was the perfect person to address this question to. So the Rebbe turned to the young man and he answered him with two words. Bidamayich chayi. Now the young man was startled. But he thought about it and he thought he understood. Where do these two words come from? They come from the Navi Yechezkel. The Prophet Yechezkel says Bidamayich chayi, which translates literally to in your blood live. Now the Pasuk is recited at every bris, every bris you go to. We say that Pasuk, it's an allusion to the time in Egypt, in Mitzrayim, just prior to the Exodus, when the Jewish people were commanded to perform a bris milah, to circumcise all of the males, and to bring the Korban Pesach. And the merit of these two commandments, both which involve blood, bris milah and the killing of the carbon Pesach, they would earn redemption and eternal life, they would become God's chosen, chosen people. Through the blood of Brismila and carbon Pesach, this, the, the symbols of redemption. So the young man thought out loud and he said, he understood, he thought he understood what the Rebbe was hinting at. That they were able to move on. Why? The Messiris Nefesh. 
the unbelievable sacrifices, the efforts. They had literally bled. They had lost their flesh and blood. And that Mesiris Nefesh, that, that great sacrifice, earned them the ability to go on. But the Rebbe turned to the young man and he corrected him. He said, that's not at all what I meant by B'damaya Chayi. The secret, the formula to the courage of the survivors, said the Rebbe, comes from somewhere else. Let me tell you what I meant, B'damaya Chayi. And the Rebbe turned to the young man and he told him all about this morning's parsha, The profound pain that Aaron must have felt. Moshe tries to comfort his brothers, his brother. Aaron reacts and responds with complete and utter, total and absolute silence. Said the Rebbe, we don't know what the nature of Aaron's silence was. What was he thinking inside? We'll never know. But what we do know was that his silence allowed him to continue to function, to be positive, to do good. He said, he turned to the young man and he said, you asked how did we rebuild our lives? The answer is, B'damayich chayi. B'damayich with the vayidom of Aaron. With silence we continue to have a life. There's no answers there's no solutions, but we don't become handicapped, we don't become paralyzed by the search for answers when there are none. Instead, bidamayich chayi. With the vayidam of Aaron, chayi, we've rebuilt our lives. Silence allows us to be positive, to be upbeat, to have faith in the world, and to go on. For some of us, it's a silence of acquiescence or submission. For others, a silence of perplexity and doubt. For others, a silence of confrontation and challenge. Different people's silence mean different things. Rabbi J.J. Schachter, when he uh, talks about, he doesn't tell the story of the Kleisenberger Rebbe, but when he talks about this, he quotes Eli Wiesel. Eli Wiesel was once asked, is there a tradition of silence in Judaism? Yes, he answered, but we don't talk about it. (laughs) So, as Pesach taught us that questions are not only legitimate, but they're encouraged and welcomed, answers are not always that easy to come by. Yom HaShoah elicits all kinds of questions that we don't have answers to. But like the Kleisenberger Rebbe and so many of our survivors, with the Vayidam of Aram. And as I was looking at the Parsha this morning, it occurred to me that maybe many of the Mepharshim are missing the boat because the text itself gives us the answer. When everyone is struggling to figure out and to give meaning and to explain why it happened, Vayidam Aram. Aaron says, don't bother. That's not our way. We don't say, why did the Holocaust happen? We don't say, why did the Crusades happen? What we do say is, how can we become better? How can we grow? What can we change? How can we improve? But we don't try to offer explanations. To offer an explanation would, be, would, would to try to be God Himself. To offer an explanation is in some way an act of kfirah. Because we don't tread on God's territory. Only God could know why He runs the world the way He does. So maybe Aaron was teaching us, Vayidom Aaron, don't try to find an explanation. Grieve, mourn, cry, grow, learn, improve. But Vayidom, it's as if, it occurred to me this morning, Aaron was trying to send this message to the commentators, many of whom missed it, which was, stop trying to explain. Sometimes another Vinavia will drop dead. Sometimes a Holocaust will happen and we don't become a handicapped and, high, and, and paralyzed by trying to explain. Vayidom. Our job is to accept and to mourn, grieve, even be angry 
but to find a way to put one foot in front of the other and to move forward and to move on. So it's a very powerful, powerful text. I don't think it's a coincidence. It comes before Yom HaShoah mm-hmm. and gives us the strength during this time. I hope everyone will come tomorrow night, 7.30. We have a powerful program. And as I keep pointing out, it's, it's really a, a, an obligation and a duty. Whatever one's personal feelings on Yom HaShoah should, shouldn't exist. Baisalavechik was opposed to the creation of Yom HaShoah. He felt that Holocaust Remembrance Day should be included within Tisha B'Av itself. We don't make new days. But whatever one's personal feelings, now that it's here, it's our obligation to honor our survivors. It's hard to imagine a more important place to be or something that takes, that's more important to do than showing honor. I saw an article, 12,000 survivors in Israel alone died in the past year since last Yom HaShoah. The opportunities will not go on forever to honor those who went through so much. Who are the Arons? How, would you not comfort Aaron after what we just read this morning? So 7.30 tomorrow night, hopefully everyone will be there. Have a fantastic week and a great Shabbos.